Well, it happened this past Monday night. It was January the 8th, and it was the National Division I College Football Championship Final. And Alabama beat Georgia in overtime 26 to 23. It was an exciting game in so many ways. And there are a lot of amazing stories that have come out of that game. But I think the one that people will talk about the most going into the future is the decision that Alabama coach Nick Saban made at halftime. He decided to bench the starting quarterback, Jalen Hurts, who was 25-2 and in his record as a starter. Amazing record and a wonderful quarterback. But it just wasn't happening that night. He decided to bench Jalen Hurts and put in the game, starting the second half, a backup freshman quarterback, a true freshman from Hawaii named Tua Tagavaloa. None of us had ever heard of him, really, because he hadn't played a meaningful snap all season, just in games where they were already way ahead. But it became obvious as Tagavailoa came into the game that he was an ordinary freshman. Through some selective running and precision passing, he began to move his team up the field, and they began to rack up first downs. Then they began to score, although the score had been 13 to nothing at halftime with Georgia ahead. And at the end of regulation play, the score was knotted at 20 to 20 overtime. Well, in overtime, uh, Georgia kicked a field goal and was up three points. But now it was time for this freshman leader, Tagavailoa to really show his poise. Although he was sacked for a 16-yard loss, in the very next play, his confident leadership was shown again as he threw a 41-yard touchdown pass to his teammate, Devontae Smith, for the winning score. It was pandemonium. It was one of those games that you just kind of Never forget. And after the game, Tagavailoa wanted to praise his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he did that every time a microphone was put in his face. And he thanked and praised his coaches and his teammates for their work. And he continued to show an amazingly humble attitude in spite of all the accolades that were coming his way. You know, successful leaders in this world have a confidence that's contagious. You could see it in his teammates in that second half. Not just the offense, but the defense. Their body language changed. As this confident leader was now inspiring them to give their best, and they began to believe, although they were down, they began to believe that they could actually win this game. A leader is someone who knows where he or she is going and persuades others to follow. Martin Luther King Jr. was a leader like that. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend where we kind of celebrate and, and remember his leadership and the dream of racial equality in this country, 
were reminded that he had an inspiring confidence about him. And he spoke so confidently about that dream that it, it inspired millions of people to follow and believe in the dream too. Steve Jobs took Apple Corporation from a tiny little startup business to one of the leading companies in the world. And he did it by convincing uh, board members and investors and employees and customers that they were the absolute best and they were always going to be on the cutting edge of innovation. And that inspiring leadership led people to jump on board and say, yes, we believe in this. There's a great movie out right now in the theaters. Hope you can see it. It's called Darkest Hour. It highlights the leadership of Winston Churchill, leader there's probably been as much written about as just about any leader in history. And he inspired the people of the United Kingdom to believe that they could actually prevail. I love his words toward the beginning of the war, that segment in his speech where he said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We will fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. And through his inspiring confidence, you see, all of the UK began to believe that they should never surrender, and that they would actually win. I guess you could put it like this, a good leader, a good leader inspires confidence in himself or herself. In other words, the followers grow to have confidence in the leader. That's a good leader. But I think you could say that a great leader inspires people's confidence in themselves. Because you ultimately want people to believe in themselves that they can do this. But I think that we can honestly say that a godly leader inspires people with confidence in Christ. And the question for us, for you and me as followers of Jesus, especially those of us who've been giving, given perhaps a gift of leadership, and that's many of you, what are you doing with that gift? This confidence, by the way, we speak of is not a haughty arrogance. It's a humble assurance that God's promises are true. And the Bible speaks often of that confidence that we have in Christ. Consider a few of these passages. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 13, 6, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Or consider Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
this assurance that God's promises are true, I'm telling you, friends, it gets down in your soul and it makes all the difference in the world in your attitude and the way you live your life for Christ day by day. So today, I want us to, to study the life of Jesus, the greatest leader who ever lived, and he was that in part, not only because of his faultless character, which we talked about last week, but also because he had this compelling, this magnetic confidence about him that inspired people to follow. So let's look at four examples of that confidence in this text today, starting in Luke 4, and uh, we're going to start with verse 14 in just a moment, but let's look at four examples of that and seek to follow in his steps. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus had the confidence to preach in his hometown, and if any of you have ever left your hometown and uh, maybe you went away and your life dramatically changed and then you went back, you know how awkward it can be sometimes to go back to your hometown. But he had the courage, the confidence to do that. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So see, this is his hometown. This is where he had spent all of those early growing up years. It's where he had had his carpenter shop, and it's where he had lived until he launched this public ministry some months earlier. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. Now, it's not easy for a preacher to go back to his hometown. I've done that a number of times, back to Leoma, Tennessee. And when I've gone back and preached in any number of churches there, the home church or any others that I preached in before where people knew me, I know that sitting out there in the congregation may be former coaches, former teachers, uh, former employers, former girlfriends, former friends, former teammates, former classmates who knew me back then, right? And that can feel intimidating. Here in Albany, people have only known me as an adult. <laughs> and so amazingly, some people may come and seek me out for my mature wisdom, but not in Leoma. No, no. <laughs> They would be more prone to say, is that that kid that grew up on that cotton farm over there? That, I saw him. He's a runny-nosed little kid. He was so shy. He's the last person you would ever think would speak publicly. Is that that kid who used to ride that old rusty bike up and down this road here with a towel wrapped around the seat because there was no cushion there? Is that that kid? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus went back to his hometown. William Barclay, the English scholar, says that there may have been as many as 20,000 people in that hometown, and they knew him well. But here's the deal. Not only had he grown up there, he had started a business there, carried on probably his father's business, 
of carpentry. And so they had been his clients. They had bought things from him. And no one could attack his character. No one could question his integrity. They knew he was the real deal. But it seems here that they are going to challenge his celebrity status. Isn't this Joseph's son? They said. Verse 22 reads, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Now, I love that phrase here in verse 16 where it says that on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. You know what that tells me? That not only had Jesus... Mom and his stepdad, Joseph, not only had they taken him to the synagogue as a young boy for worship and instruction, but as Jesus grew up, he never broke that routine. And so every Saturday, that's the Sabbath, every Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue. That was his custom of worship. And he never got away from that. He never drifted away. It was just familiar. And so... Most of the people there knew him. Hey, Jesus, how you doing? How's the family? Hey, how are you? Oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. Yeah. How are things going? And they ask him, would you read scripture today? And so he confidently gets up to speak. You know, one of the things I've noticed throughout years of leadership in ministry now it, this is amazing how true this is. Some of the hardest people you'll ever talk to about the Lord or about meaningful issues, guess who? It's your family. Or it's people really close to you. You know what, I, what I've observed? I've observed that honestly, and I, I, I suppose there's many reasons this could be true, but it's actually easier to go halfway around the world to go to the Philippines, to go to Australia, to go to China, to go to Haiti, to go to South America and share the gospel with people to a total strangers than it is to talk to people in your own backyard. Isn't that amazing? But most people would attest that that is true. But here's the deal. Whether we're halfway around the world or in our own hometown, the love of Christ should compel us, it should compel us confidently to share the gospel with people whether they know us or not. And we need to do that as soon as possible because there's no hope that we've got even another day. The second thing that I notice here in this passage is that Jesus had confidence to announce his deity to people who were actually skeptical of it. Let's read on verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now see, they didn't have books like we do. It wasn't pieces of paper kind of stapled or fastened together. They had these scrolls that you had to roll out, and they were usually on animal skins of some kind. The finest material was called volume, and you would roll it out to a certain passage. And there were a number of those that were kept in the synagogue, those copies of Scripture. And so 
the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now notice, he didn't pick this at random. This was all very strategic because this is a passage, and he happens to be reading from Isaiah 61. You're going to hear a quote here of that from Isaiah 61, which is all about the Messiah who would come one day. And by the way, that was written hundreds of years, roughly 700 before Jesus actually came. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, everybody in the synagogue knew that this was a passage about the Messiah. They had heard it many, many times. Most of them could have quoted it. They had heard the rabbi explain it, and they had anticipated, believe me, the Messiah's coming for years and years and years. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Notice, different than our culture and custom, they stood up to read, but they sat down when they taught. If I really was being more like Jesus, I would always sit when I taught, but we just usually don't do it that way, although there's nothing wrong with sitting, and who knows, sometimes I may choose to do that as I have in the past many times. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa, what a statement. Oh my goodness. Jesus is confidently announcing to his hometown folk, I'm the Messiah. Now, if he had expert handlers, you know, a consulting team that he had gone to, to try to tell him how he should kind of come out as Messiah, trust me, this wouldn't be the way. They'd have probably said, look, Jesus, you probably want to do that maybe. Let's see, where do you have a lot of fans? Bethany, Bethany, you got a lot of good friends there. That would be a good place to kind of first declare this. Let's get some good press going. Let's get them in, get it in the Jerusalem Gazette. Let's get it on the news. You know, let's get a twi Twitter feed going here. Let's get it on Facebook. Not, not in your hometown. Not with the people who would be most likely, perhaps, to be skeptical about this. Because all they remember is the runny-nosed little kid. Right? Some of them. And they can't get beyond that. But he declared it with confidence. And Jesus said to them, verse 23, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus is saying, look, I know you're skeptical. You're saying, look, if you're really the Messiah, if you really can perform miracles like we've heard you can, why don't you prove it? And that's apparently the way they're thinking. Jesus, look, if this is really true... And all these miracles we've heard about that you did in Capernaum, it's true. Look, why didn't you heal your dad back when he was sick so he didn't die? 
Why not? And Jesus, if it's really true that you're the Messiah and you can do all these awesome things, hey, listen, why don't you heal somebody right here, right now? In fact, there's Joe. He's got a withered leg right there. Go, how about him? Or here's Mary over here. You know, she's had some sort of internal thing. Nobody understands it. Why don't you heal her right now? Hey, John back there. Hey, he's like got one leg longer than the other. Why don't you just do a miracle right now and just prove this? To everybody, Matthew's gospel says that Jesus did no mighty work in Nazareth because of their unbelief. You see, there was a a rank skepticism among them, and they just couldn't believe what he was telling them. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Isn't it kind of funny that the closer we are to something, the less we appreciate it? Ooh, that's really true. That kind of stings a little bit, though, doesn't it? You know, we we could be so gushing and kind to a total stranger, but someone in our family, we can be cold and prickly, even calloused. Some of us can appreciate talent or kindness or character that we see in someone else but in our own spouse, in our own children, in our own family, we won't acknowledge it. Why is that? Somebody said an expert is just a regular guy at least 50 miles from home with a briefcase. That's an expert right there, all right? You just got to get away from home, right? And so Jesus' problem here is he's back home. And Jesus said, look, A prophet's just not honored in his hometown. But even though Nazareth was not receptive, Jesus announced it again, I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you what I know about you, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Sooner or later, you gotta come to grips with that declaration. I know that some of you listening tomorrow right now at at various campuses at Greenbush and Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, I know, I know you've settled this. Some of you settled it long ago. But some of you probably haven't yet. And I really respect an honest journey when someone's on that. When they're trying to decide, look, where am I going to land? What am I going to believe? What is my worldview going to be? What am I going to believe about Jesus Christ? If you're on an honest journey like that, I give you props. I give you kudos. I'd love to see that. But eventually, you've got to decide, who do you believe Jesus is? Is he really the Messiah as he claimed to be. I'm going to read you a series of statements. The reason I'm going to do this is because I want to kind of nudge you down the road a little bit in your decision making. Can I do that? Because see, here's the deal. In our culture, there's this basic trend in our culture to say, yep, Jesus is really a good teacher, fine moral person, got nothing bad to say about Jesus. That's right. But at best... He should be on the level with Buddha. At best, we'll put him right there on a par with, you know, Confucius or Muhammad or any other religious leader. He's certainly nothing more than that. But he's good. He's a good teacher. We respect him. I'm going to read to you some statements that Jesus made 
And as I read them, I'm just going to read them without comment. And I want you to ask yourself, as I'm reading these statements straight out of the Bible, these are statements that Jesus himself made. I want you to ask yourself, what kind of person made these statements if they weren't true? John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. John 8, 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 23. You are from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Now be asking yourself, who in the world would make these statements if they weren't true? John 8, 51, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. John 8, 58, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 38, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then from Matthew 26, where Jesus is being tried by Pilate, and the high priest, rather, at this point, and Jesus remained silent, mostly. And then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus breaks his silence. He said, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory and then finally, after Jesus was resurrected, his apostle Thomas sees him for the first time. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now listen, Jesus claimed to be not of the world. Jesus claimed that he and the Father were one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. Wow. You've got to make a choice about that. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford scholar, had a classic quote about this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus. And here's what they say. I, I'm ready to accept him as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and says the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. <laughs> he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice that this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And I simply say to you again, friend, everyone eventually will have to grapple with this issue at some point in your life. As for me, just so you know, I've concluded that he's king of kings and lord of lords. That's what I've concluded. I've concluded he is who he said he was. I've concluded that he indeed 
is not only who he claimed to be, but that he is therefore worthy of every day of my life given to him in utmost devotion. That's who I believe he is, and of course, that's where I hope you land as well. Third, Jesus had confidence to confront people with an unpopular truth. You're going to see here that he confronts the people in his hometown of all places about their racist attitudes toward the Gentiles. Now, Jesus had grown up there. He had seen it. He had heard the jokes. He had seen the innuendos and the raised eyebrows. He knew the Jews didn't like the Gentiles and the Gentiles didn't like the Jews. So he puts down the scroll and he confidently confronted them on this sensitive issue. Verse 25, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He said, look, you remember that time when there was a famine, three and a half years didn't rain at all, everything was dried up, and Elijah, one of your religious heroes in the scriptures, he didn't go to any of them. He went to a Jew, a Gentile widow. He stayed at her house. He, he ate food that she prepared. He healed her son. Have you ever thought about that? And the truth is, they had not thought about that much at all. He goes on, verse 27, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And look, Elisha, another one of your great heroes, a great prophet. There were all kinds of lepers around in his day when God's power was on him. But who did he heal? He healed Naaman, a Gentile from Syria. He's basically saying God doesn't play favorites. But look at their reaction. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. <laughs> They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. I wish we had a video of this. I don't know how he got out of that exactly. That's why I'm just so curious. And there's lots of conjectures about that and so on. But Jesus was such a confident leader. I'm so impressed. He didn't hesitate to confront sensitive issues. Now, friends, in every age, in every generation, in every culture, there are sensitive issues. They vary depending on where you are in the world. And the temptation of both people in the pulpit and people in the pew is to sidestep those issues so as not to upset people. For instance, where I grew up in the South some years ago, it used to really upset people if you spoke against segregation, if you spoke against discrimination, if you talked about the integration of the races. That upset people. If you talked about, hey, we need to love everybody, get along, that upset people. But you know, today, mostly, although we've got a long way to go, Nobody will raise an eyebrow if you preach against bigotry today. 
In fact, you'll get a lot of applauding. You'll get a lot of people saying, amen, preacher, preach it. So thankfully, we've made a little bit of progress there, although we've got a long way to go. You know what else I notice? Years ago, when I started preaching, it was excruciating to talk about money. Anytime you did, oh, man. Because people are greedy by nature, and they don't want you sharing biblical principles about giving back and generosity and all that. But you know what I've noticed? While it's still a little sensitive, I've noticed that even the most secular people today love to talk about giving back. How are you giving back? Because that's now the fad. That's the thing to do. And so it makes it a little easier to talk about money and how you're handling it. But please understand, biblical values and biblical lifestyles are always going to be at a tension point against the unbelieving world. Why is that true? Because as Peter said, we are aliens and strangers down here. And our values and our principles and our worldview is always gonna rub some people the wrong way and upset them and there's no way we can change that. We can only seek to be filled with the Spirit and be as winsome as we can possibly be. But we are aliens. We are strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. So we need to be very wise as we live here. The Bible says, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. And so Jesus was confident to touch on this sensitive subject, even though it made people very uncomfortable and even angry. Well, fourth and finally, Jesus had confidence to continue to minister in spite of rejection. I just love this about our Lord. He just kept on going no matter what the response was because he was living for an audience of one. He was living for the Father's goodwill. He was living to please his heavenly Father. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath day began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Now, by the way, other than Herod's futile attempt to kill the babies in and around the vicinity of Bethlehem when Jesus had been born, other than that, this is the first actual attempt to take the Lord's life. There would be others that would follow, but this is the first one here. And again, I don't know how he got out of this. Some people believe that God just did a miracle and kind of tased the crowd for a moment, kind of put them in a catatonic state where Jesus kind of said, thank you very much, I'm out of here, and just kind of walked away. But I tend to believe it probably was just the moral authority of his life. I think that in their mob mentality, as they're about to cast him over this cliff, I think that when he stopped at the edge and then suddenly confronted them and began to look in their eyes, I think that the moral authority of his life allowed him to just walk right through the crowd and go on. We don't really know, but no one dared lay a hand on him, lay a hand on him. But here's what's most impressive to me. He immediately goes to another town and begins to preach and heal. He didn't say, wow, that was a close call. I almost 
lost my life there, I think I'll go preach in the Bible Belt for a while. I, I, I think I'll go on a five-month sabbatical after that. No. He had the confidence to continue, and we need that same confidence in our world. Can I tell you something I know about you? If you seek to represent Jesus well, I know this, you're going to be rejected sometimes. Not everybody that you invite to church is going to want to come with you. And even if they do come and you're all excited because you invited your friend and you want to share all of God's goodness with them, you want them to meet some other wonderful people here. After they come, they may not be all that excited. You know why? Because their heart is just not ready yet for the revolutionary change that Jesus wants to bring in their life. And as you live for and minister for him, listen, some people are going to reject the Lord that you present to them. We read in scripture that when the apostle Paul went to Lystra, the enemies of Christ stoned him. And they thought he was dead. They left him literally for dead. But the disciples came around, no doubt, praying over him. And then later, he was able to get up and go on. The next day, he and Barnabas went to Derby, where they kept on preaching, won a great number of disciples. And then a little bit later, guess what? They come right back to Lystra, right back to the place where people had been so hostile. Where did Paul get that spirit? He got it from Jesus who kept right on going, who walked through the crowd, who went to the next village and kept on preaching. I urge you, dear follower of Jesus, don't grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Just keep sowing the seeds of the gospel. I did a Google search this week of celebrities who are born-again Christians. That's an interesting discovery. And a whole bunch of the ones that I found are already deceased. Many of them have passed away, names that you would no doubt know, but oh, there's a whole bunch of others that are still alive today, young and old, celebrities, people that are well-known who are born-again Christians. Can I just show you a few of them? And as I show you these pictures, I want you to be asking yourself, what do these people have in common? And you may be tempted to say, absolutely nothing, pastor, absolutely nothing. Well, Here's some of them. Mr. T, remember him? The A-Team and many other shows. Passionate, born-again Christian. Bono, one of the most respected musical artists alive today. He's brought a Christian, brought a sort of Christian consciousness to not just the church in many countries, but, but also to unbelievers. Jeff Gordon. The race car driver is an outspoken and passionate Christian. Alice Cooper. Well, this was one of the craziest rock and rollers back when I was younger. And uh, Alice Cooper says, oh, it's easy to trash a hotel room. He says, it's hard to follow Jesus, he says. Kirk Cameron, the actor. How about George Foreman, heavyweight boxing champion, outspoken, passionate, born-again Christian. And then there's M.C. Hammer. Remember, can't touch this, right? Sherry Shepard, the comedian and TV personality. Kim Fields, the actress, singer, and TV producer. China Phillips, singer, songwriter, born-again Christian, passionate. And then there's the golfer, Bubba Watson. 
one of the top golfers in the world today. And then many of you will know and appreciate Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. Very young guy, in his 20s, outspoken follower of Jesus. And then there's Carson Wentz of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Eagles, solid Christian. And yes, now, Tua Tagovailoa, you can add to that list, because he may be a household word before we know it. Now, can you figure out what they all have in common? (laughs) Here it is. All of them had somebody that sowed seeds of truth in their lives. All of them. There was all a time, all of them had a time when they had not declared trust and faith in Jesus. But someone sowed and kept on sowing seeds of truth, seeds of the gospel. And I encourage you, because it's not true just of celebrities, it's true of more ordinary people like me, like you, Somebody has to sow that seed, and when we faithfully sow, eventually, God will let that seed fall in a crack where it will grow and bring forth fruit. Don't grow weary. Let the confidence of Jesus come through your life as you follow him day by day. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for the compelling confidence of Jesus And we can be inspired by that as we seek to lead and influence people in our day. Thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence and courage because we know you have overcome and we can be of good cheer. You've overcome this world. We will too. Thank you for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.